All right, so as Earl said during the announcements, today is the first Sunday in our Scenes in Acts series, where we're going to be looking at some of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is the story of what happened in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. After Jesus resurrected, he stayed on earth for about 40 days, and he gave the disciples some final instructions, and then he ascended into heaven, and he left the disciples with this task, which we call the Great Commission, of making disciples of people in all nations. So the book of, the, book of Acts is the story of what happened as the disciples started to go out and fulfill that Great Commission. Now, a lot of the dramatic stories in Acts are really inspiring and beautiful stories of uh, miracles, of healings, of mass conversions, even of uh, miraculous jailbreaks. And we're going to cover a lot of that stuff over the next uh, month or two. But this morning, we're starting with a story that is not so much beautiful or inspiring as it is frightening. Uh, we're, we're looking at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> and although it's not the kind of story that most of us want to hear, uh, it is included in Acts for a reason, and I think it's really important for us to learn from it. So perhaps uh, starting this series in an unexpected way, we're beginning with this this strange and somewhat frightening story of Ananias and Sapphira. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. And I'm going to say a quick prayer for us. Lord, uh, we thank you for the scriptures. Uh, we thank you for the, the way that you speak to us through them. And we thank you even for the parts that are challenging and hard for us to hear, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would just open our, our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you want to tell us uh, through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 4, <coughs> starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. All right, so there we're given this really beautiful picture uh, of the, the infant Christian church. Uh, this is a church where everybody's on the same page. They're, they're one in heart and mind. Uh, everyone's sharing with each other, and so nobody's in need. And one of the reasons nobody was in need is because uh, people who had uh, property that they didn't need, many of them would willingly sell that property and then offer uh, the money uh, to the church to be distributed to the needy. Now, this is something that's easy for us to miss, but I, I think it's an important point to make. Uh, this, this selling of property that was going on, this wasn't something that was coerced. It wasn't some, something that was demanded. It was something that was done willingly. 
Uh, there's nothing in here that says that the apostles were requiring everyone to do this in order to be part of the fellowship. Now, if that doesn't some, seem clear right now, I think it will be, become clear later in the story. But for now, I just want us to, to keep this in mind, that these, these were willing and uncoerced offerings uh, that the people were bringing. Okay. So, continuing verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's an example of one of the people that was willingly giving uh, an offering like this. And uh, we can see that this is a man who is highly regarded in the church. He's got a great reputation. His real name is Joseph, but people call him Barnabas, because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So this is a guy who people would look at him and they would just go, oh, there's Mr. Encouraging. You know, every time you talk to him, he just leaves you feeling better than before you, you talk to him. Mr. Encouraging. He had, a, he had a great reputation. And undoubtedly, uh, him selling this land and then offering the money to the church only served to increase his reputation, right? Mr. Encouraging. Now, some of us care about reputation more than others, but for those of us who do care, I bet we can imagine what it might feel like to be jealous of a guy like Barnabas, right? Um, this is me being very, very transparent, but I can remember that when I was on staff with Campus Crusade and we would go on summer projects, I could get, I could get jealous if some other staff guy seemed to be appreciated more by the students he was working with, you know, because uh, sometimes students would express how much they loved their discipler, and, and they would say, oh, you know, he's, he's a real godly stud. He inspires me, you know? And I would think, I would think oh, man, well, do, do my guys like me, too? You know? And it, it, it could be easy, if you, you didn't stay guarded, to start to envy people who seem to get more appreciation than you, Right? Um, and so I'm sure that some people looked at Barnabas and thought, you know, I want other people to look at me the same way. You know, I want other people to look at me and say, wow, what an encouraging, godly, inspiring person. And two people who felt that way were this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. So continuing in chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, the Greek word that gets used here for kept back, uh, that Greek word in itself actually has a negative connotation to it. If you look up that word in a Greek dictionary, one of, the word, one of the meanings is to embezzle or to withdraw co covertly and appropriate for one's own use. So there's an indication here, even in the language that's being used itself, that Ananias is doing something that is uh, secretive for selfish reasons. Okay? This is not just simply holding back. This is holding back. Okay. Okay, continuing in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it's, it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right. Tough story, right? <laughs> well, okay. Last week, we talked about the disciple Peter's story, right? And we talked about what an incredible example of grace that story is. Because Peter denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was, and he even said, may God curse me if I'm lying, which he was, right? And he did this just a few hours after promising to Jesus that he would never do this. So he sinned, and he had no excuse at all. But when Jesus was resurrected, did he say, I reject you because you rejected me? No. Jesus still wanted to meet with Peter. He even went out of his way to meet with Peter personally. He forgave him, and he reaffirmed the calling that he had on Peter's life uh, for him to be the cornerstone of the church. And last week, I made the point that even if we, like Peter, have sinned and we have no excuse, God still wants to meet with us, he still wants to forgive us, and he still wants to equip us to serve him in some way. Now, if you were here for that story last week and you were moved and reassured by that example of God's grace, you might be looking at the story right now and being like, where's the grace? Right? I mean, Peter denied Jesus three times, and he didn't get struck down dead. And the Apostle Paul, he was persecuting Christians. He was, he was assenting to the death of Christians, giving approval to their death, and God didn't strike him dead. So why do Ananias and Sapphira get struck dead? I mean, all they did was keep some money for themselves. What's so bad about that? I mean, we feel pretty good if we tithe, right? <laughs> They just held back some of it. You know, how can you say that God is, is graceful and forgiving if he does stuff like this? You know, after, after last week, this feels like takesies backsies. And I realized that if you felt relief after last week's message, <clears throat> right now you might be second-guessing that relief. You might be thinking, hey, last week I thought that God wanted to forgive me, this week, now I'm scared he wants to strike me dead. All right. If that is what you're thinking, 
Okay, here's what I would say to you. Are you still breathing? If the answer is yes, and I'm pretty sure it is, then you can rest assured that Jesus still wants to meet with you. Jesus still wants to forgive you. Whatever you have done, okay, he still wants to meet with you. And every breath that you take is a gift from him, giving you an opportunity to repent and come to him and meet with him. Um, Ananias and Sapphira died immediately after their sin. You have not. Okay, now, that doesn't mean that you don't deserve to die for your sin. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're better than Ananias and Sapphira. But it means that God still wants you to move toward him. Uh, he still wants to meet with you, still wants to forgive you, still wants to equip you and empower you to serve him. Uh, he wants your redemption far more than he wants your destruction. Okay? And you can be confident of that. First uh, John 1 9, like I read during the invocation, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and, for, and just and will forgive us our sins. Okay, please, whatever you take from this story, don't let this story lead you to think that God is less forgiving than you thought last week. Okay? If you're breathing, he still wants to meet with you. The lesson that we are supposed to learn from this story is not that God does not want to forgive us, okay? I, I want to assure each and every one of us of that. Um, but before we talk about what the real lesson of this story is, I want to be honest about something, okay? And some of you might be bothered that I'm talking about ambiguity in the text, okay? But there is some ambiguity in the text here, and I want to be honest about that. So I am not 100% confident who the agent is that kills Ananias and Sapphira in this story. There's actually three possibilities that I think we should be open to, okay? The first one is, is the most common interpretation, which is that it is God himself that does this. Kind of like the picture of Zeus throwing the, the lightning bolt, God kills Ananias and Sapphira. He is the direct agent of their death. And there's, you know, certainly points in this interpretation's favor. Uh, God has the right to judge. He is the ultimate judge. He is the giver of life, and so he also has the right to take it away. God is omniscient, unlike us, and he knows what is best. And even though we might think, man, this is super harsh, God in his wisdom might have known this is the thing that has to happen, right? So that's one possible uh, explanation. Second possibility, Satan kills Ananias and Sapphira. And the uh, part of the support for this is verse 3. Remember, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So right there we're told Satan has filled Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. And what that indicates is that through a series of, de of decisions, Ananias and Sapphira have opened themselves up to Satan's influence. And he has come in to them and, and he is directing them in an in obviously a, a, a harmful way. And scripture tells us that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his aim, Right? So it makes sense that if you open yourself up to the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that you will be vulnerable to being stolen from, being killed, and being destroyed, right? 
So <clears throat> uh, it's possible what, what is going on here is that Ananias and Sapphira, through, the, through, through their actions, have opened them, themselves up to a fatal attack uh, from Satan. And then a third possibility is that Peter is actually the agent of the death. And this one is probably the least likely one. But again, there's, there's some, some points to be made here. Um, in the Bible, individuals are often given spiritual authority. We all have spiritual authority through Christ. And when we have spiritual authority, we have power that be go, goes beyond natural human power. And if it is the case that here Peter is actually the agent of Ananias and Sapphira dying, it would not be the first time in Scripture when somebody who has been given spiritual authority uses that to kill someone. Uh, the prophet Elijah, for example, in 2 Kings 1, he calls down fire from heaven on over a hundred of the king's soldiers. And then God sends an angel to him to say, uh, Elijah, don't, don't do that anymore. You can go with them. <laughs> Um, so it's possible that Peter has the spiritual authority because he has been given great amount of authority by God. He is the cornerstone of the church, right? And it's possible that he is, he is the agent that is doing this. And it's also possible that that might not have been God's ideal for how Peter used his authority, just as it wasn't God's ideal for Elijah to kill all those people, right? Okay, so those are the three options. And you might be saying, well, Pastor Ryan, you know, you're supposed to be the pastor, so you're supposed to tell us what to think and make it easy for us, right? Um, well, I think you need to pray about it. You need to think about it for, for yourself. Um, but if I was pushed to the wall and said, you got to pick one, uh, what I would say is kind of a combination of one and two. Uh, I would say that I, I really do believe that Satan is, is the agent that steals, kills, and destroys. Uh, Satan is the one who, who, who does this. But uh, God has chosen to withdraw his protective influence. Usually, uh, when we sin and we open ourselves up to Satan's influence, I believe that God actively intervenes to prevent us from reaping the consequences of that. Because we do deserve death through our actions. Um, but I believe that in this case, God in his wisdom chose to withdraw that protective influence and allow this sin to reap its consequences. Um, so, yeah, some sort of combination of, of one and two, if you want my, my opinion. <clears throat> but whichever one it is, okay, whatever one you conclude, one thing is clear. This story is meant to serve as a warning to us. That's why it's here. It's a warning. Ananias and Sapphira did do something wrong. Okay, they did something seriously wrong. And we should be very serious about not repeating their mistake. Now, I said earlier when I was trying to anticipate objections or you know, questions about this story, I said, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't even do anything that bad, right? All they did was keep some of the money for themselves from the property that they sold, which hardly seems like a sin at all. I mean, at least they gave something, right? What's the big deal? 
Well, the problem wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give all the money. That, that wasn't actually the problem. On the surface, it might seem that way, but it's not. The problem was that they lied. Okay, the problem was that they made it look like they were giving all the money. Notice again what Peter says in verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have what? Lied. That you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What Peter is saying there in those last two sentences is, wasn't the money yours? Weren't you free to do with it what you wanted? What he's saying is, you weren't under compulsion to give money to us. You weren't obligated to do it. So the problem wasn't that you didn't give all the money. The problem was that you lied about what you were giving. You were claiming to give the full price for the property, but you weren't. And if you have any doubt at all that lying was Ananias and Sapphira's sin, let's look again at what happens when Sapphira shows up. Right? Uh, Peter says, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Okay, that is a, a clear lie right there. And it also shows that this is a premeditated act on their part, right? They planned to tell everyone this is the full price and be disingenuous about that. You know, I think that if Sapphira had said, oh, yeah, no, that's not the full price. We, we decided to tithe on the land. It's 10%. Then Peter would have been like, oh, well, thanks for being honest. But instead she lied, and her lie makes it clear that, that, that Ananias and Sapphira planned to be deceptive. So that is the real sin here, is, is the lying. And the kind of lying that's going on here is what we call hypocrisy. Uh, it's trying to give people an impression that we are more holy or virtuous than we actually are. And why would we do that? Because we care about reputation. Because we care more about what people think of us than who we actually are. You know, Ananias and Sapphira wanted people in the church community to look at them like they, they looked at Barnabas and to be like, oh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Generous. They're, oh, they're so inspiring. They're, they're so generous. But they didn't really care about actually being generous. They just wanted the reputation of generosity. And so they cared more about reputation than they cared about their character. Right? They cared more about reputation than about being honest. They cared more about reputation than about being obedient to the Holy Spirit. And I realize, you know, some of us might still be thinking, yeah, but is hypocrisy really that big of a deal? Is caring about reputation more than those things really that evil? And the answer is yes. It is. Hypocrisy is a terrible thing. Jesus said in Luke 12, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What's the problem with the, the Pharisees? They're hypocrites. And notice that he compares hypocrisy to yeast. You guys know how yeast works, right? You put a little bit of yeast in some dough, and it just spreads throughout the whole thing. 
And what Jesus is saying there is a little bit of hypocrisy infects the whole community. Now, why is that true? Well, I can think of two ways that's true. One is because when one person in the community starts to pretend to be way more holy and virtuous than they are, everybody else thinks, oh, well, I guess I need to be that holy and virtuous, right? And so then you have the church version of keeping up with the Joneses, where everyone is trying to be, present themselves as more holy and virtuous than they are. So, you know, it's not about keeping up in terms of income or the quality of your car, but in terms of looking morally upright and perfect. And when you have a community where everybody is doing that, nobody deals with their issues, right? Nobody grows because nobody's being real. Nobody's being authentic. Nobody's talking about what's actually going on in their lives. And everyone just gets stuck. And everyone spends all this time and energy presenting this false version of themselves while hiding their true selves. And that's not what the church is supposed to be. And then the second reason that hypocrisy spreads is because usually, eventually, hypocrisy reveals itself. Right? It usually doesn't stay hidden for that long. And if you find yourself in a community where over your time you realize, hey, that person's a hypocrite. Wait, that person's a hypocrite. You start to think, eh, everybody's a hypocrite, right? Every, who cares about the sin? I mean, everybody actually does it. Spreads throughout the whole community. Another reason hypocrisy is such a big deal is because it ruins the church's witness. The, uh, the Barna Research Group, about 10 years ago, they did a poll where they asked people who are not Christians the question, why do you reject Christianity? And 85% of the people polled checked the box that says, because Christians are hypocritical. Now that, that answer was given more than any evidential reason for rejecting Christianity. Uh, see, people outside of the church, they are looking for evidence that God is real, and that Jesus is risen. And some people, nerds like me, will be interested in reading a book about you know, reasons for the historicity of the resurrection or Aquinas's five proofs for the existence of God or something like that, but most people don't care. Most people are looking for evidence that the spirit of God is at work in the lives of people. They're looking for evidence that people Set, do what they believe and what they say. They're looking for authenticity and realness. The kind of evidence that most people are interested in is the evidence that comes from seeing authentic people walking authentic with God. You know, I don't, I don't even think most people are looking for perfection. I think pe most people are looking for the kind of people who, when they screw up, they're honest about it, and they say, I'm sorry, you know? Authentic people walking authentically with God. That's what people are looking for. But hypocrisy removes that evidence that people are searching for. When the church is filled with Ananias and Sapphiras, people don't find the evidence for God and for the risen Jesus that they're looking for. Um, 
Eventually, hypocrites are usually found out. Maybe not as quickly or as dramatically as Ananias and Sapphira, uh, but usually, eventually, the charade is revealed. And when it is, the church's witness is damaged. And when that, that happens, people have a reason to doubt anything that we say about Jesus. So hypocrisy is, is not something to be taken lightly at all. It is serious. It's a deadly serious thing. Now, I said most of us, when we, when we sin, when we are hypocritical, we do not suffer the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't know if that's just because God withholds directly killing us or because he just chooses to continue to shield us from uh, Satan's uh, desire to, to, to strike us down fatally. Uh, but whatever the case, it's because God exercises a grace over us that we don't deserve. That's the important thing to recognize. Um, God's decision to shield us from that is not because hypocrisy doesn't matter. It's just because he's, he's really forgiving and graceful. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira helps us to see what the sin of hypocrisy actually deserves. How serious it is. So the simple message that I think we need to, need to take from this story is just don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> don't be a hypocrite. And there's three specific ways to, to put some meat on that bone, you know. One, care more about character than reputation. It shouldn't matter that much what everybody thinks of you. It should matter who you actually are. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira, caring more about whether people see them as generous than whether they actually are generous. Uh, two, don't hold others to a higher standard than you hold yourself. That is one of the, the worst manifestations of hypocrisy. You, know, you tell everybody else that they need to be doing A, B, and C, but you never do it yourself. And then... Three, just be authentic. You know, it's actually a lot of work to present a false version of ourselves, right? We're called to do something different. We're called to be real. It's so important to realize when God says hypocrisy is a really serious sin, don't be a hypocrite. He's not saying be perfect. He's saying don't pretend to be perfect. <laughs> There's a big difference there. And yes, we should all be striving to live righteous lives. You know, we should all be work aiming at perfection, of course. We should all take sin seriously. But the great evil that this story is reminding us of is the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of pretending to be perfect when we're not. Now, I realize that someone here might be thinking, you know what, I've been a hypocrite for a long time. Uh, the version of myself that I present in church and who I actually am are wildly different. And you might be feeling convicted right now, and you might be thinking, <clears throat> I need to confess this to somebody. I need to get real with somebody. I need to be authentic. But then you might think to yourself, well, but if I get honest with somebody about my, my hypocritical behavior, then it's going to damage the church's witness. So I better just keep my mouth shut. Well, if that's you, here's what I would encourage you to remember. If you willingly confess to someone about hypocritical behavior, that is one of the most powerful witnesses to the Holy Spirit that could ever be, right? Because nobody in their right mind wants to do that. Nobody wants to be authentic about their failures. 
right? Now, if you wait until your, your, your hypocrisy is revealed and then you unwillingly have to confess, well, that's not a powerful witness to the Holy Spirit's power. You know, that's just unfortunate, right? But when you take the first step and you willingly confess to somebody, that is a powerful witness. That's something where the Spirit's power is made evident. So don't worry about damaging the church's witness. Worry more about the damage that's done by hypocrisy. And so, action point for all of us, if you really feel like you've been hiding your true self, if you feel like you've been hypocritical for a long time, I encourage you to find somebody, somebody in the church, somebody that you trust, and and talk to them about it. Be determined not to be Ananias or Sapphira. And remember, okay, regardless of how you may have been hypocritical, you're still breathing. And that means God still wants to meet with you. He still wants to forgive you. He still wants to call you to serve him. But start by taking the mask off. Let's pray. Lord, this... This example is a reminder of how graceful you are to us because I'm sure at some point every one of us has been guilty of this sin, of hypocrisy, of presenting ourselves as better or more virtuous or righteous than we actually are. And Lord, I I just, I thank you so much that you've withheld uh, this sort of consequence uh, from us. And Lord, I, I pray that we would take hypocrisy seriously, Lord, that we would be authentic, that we would be real. Lord, I pray that we would care more about who we really are than our reputation, Lord. And I thank you that when we're real, when we're authentic, you meet us with your grace. Lord, I pray that our community would be one that walks in the light and experiences the, the power and joy of doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.